0: accepting my limitations. It's actually been really empowering to use identity first language, which is pretty common within the disabled community because it allows us to acknowledge that aspect of our lives.
1: Welcome to Unlocking College Life, real talk about all things college. The best part of this podcast is that
0: your voice is part of the show. Other students care what you have to say, so, through your questions, your feedback, and your real talk, we all grow together. Let's dive in with your hosts, Joy and Alona.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome back to Unlocking College Life. We are joined today by a student who is a graduate student in the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan and I invited Karina because I wanted her to talk a little bit about her journey as an undergrad and graduate student, and particularly as someone who has been navigating a disability throughout her entire college career. And so I will let Karina introduce herself.
0: My name is Karina. I am a transplant to Michigan. I moved here just a few years ago from the West Coast. I am enjoying the snow, though. And I do identify as having a disability. And this means like, I would use identity first language. So instead of saying like I am a person with a disability, I just say I'm disabled. And this can be controversial in some fields, especially actually in social work, which is what I'm studying, where it's often taught to use person-first language. But in my journey of accepting my diagnoses and accepting my limitations, it's actually been really empowering to use identity-first language, which is pretty common within the disabled community, actually, because it allows us to acknowledge that aspect of our lives and how present it always is and the impact it really has without carrying the shame sometimes when using person-first language or trying to distance ourselves from being disabled or having a chronic illness. And that can be pretty harmful when it's internalized. So throughout the rest of this podcast, I will be using identity-first language.
1: Thank you for clarifying that, Karina. I think that's really important. And I know you've talked a little bit in the past about how you're journey has actually gone from more of a hidden identity to more of a visible identity. and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so I have a genetic connective tissue disorder, which means that I've had it since birth. However, I was only diagnosed completely a couple years ago, and I have had symptoms since birth but they weren't overtly concerning. The first real severe medical intervention I needed, I was 10 years old. The doctors at the time ran a battery of tests. I had a spinal tap and several MRIs and was transported to Oakland Children's Hospital from California and they couldn't figure it out this condition is pretty rare. It's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And you have to get a genetic test panel for it because all my other tests came back, Uh, inconclusive or fine. They just said it was psychosomatic and that I should see a therapist so I could learn how to seek attention in appropriate ways. So I spent pretty much the next decade of my life ignoring whenever I felt pain or had a stomach ache because I didn't trust that anything was going to be happening from it and had really, really bought into the fact that I was making a bigger deal out of it than was real. That was okay for a little while. My disability is... Degenerative in a way. So, when I was a kid, I didn't have as many life altering aspects from it. But little did I know that every sprained ankle I had, or sprained wrist, or concussion was all because of faulty connective tissue. And I played sports through the pain and through injuries and didn't go to doctors for a long, long time. And then I did go to a doctor, and things were pretty bad. Uh, I was 17, 18 at this point, and my intestines were severely inflamed. The doctors were really worried I might have cancer. Things had gotten pretty bad. I don't have cancer, but my connective tissues within the digestive tract for the type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome I have are commonly affected. And so I struggled a lot with that in undergrad, managing my digestive health and my joint health. I now have osteoarthritis. So things really started to get visibly bad when I was 23, which in this disorder, I guess, is actually pretty common for the mid-20s to be when more things start popping up or mobility aids come into question or surgeries. So that's why I was finally able to be tested for this, because insurance isn't going to draw a genetic panel unless you have real signs pointing to something being wrong, which is really unfortunate because there were signs previously. So yeah, for a long time as a kid, I was able to internally know I was feeling ill and yet still participate pretty much just as any of my classmates could. And it has pros and cons to both sides of having an invisible disability or chronic illness, because passing as able-bodied can be a privilege in this society, disabled People and people who are chronically ill are often treated in a way that is discriminatory. And so it was both invalidating to be seen as able-bodied and treated as able-bodied and nice. Now that I don't really have that option, I have medical equipment attached to my body 24-7 that is very visible earlier this year that might come. It was a relief because I was able to be in public and have a visible representation to validate what I was feeling and to validate if I said I was in pain or that I was struggling. So it's been really interesting to go from having a completely invisible disability to having being more seen in that way.
1: So I feel like Ilona probably has a similar ton of questions actually from everything. But the first one was going back to what you said originally, which was that I understand that the diagnosis was complicated and that maybe some things were missed, not because of mistakes, but because it was maybe hard to put together. But you said something about that they advised you to sort of go to therapy. And it seemed like at some point that shifted, or maybe it didn't. I was curious, you said, you know, at 17, you actually went to maybe a different doctor. How did that shift instead of someone saying, well, just go to therapy about this to like, no, this is something that is more than that.
0: So that's actually a bit complicated. I grew up in a household of addicts. So not only was I scared of going back to doctors, but we didn't really go to doctors or dentists or have as many well checks as we probably should have, which was partly because we were really impacted. My family was really impacted by the recession. My mom was a realtor. My dad would work on painting and fixing up the houses that she was selling. And the city we lived in was one of the hardest hit in the nation. In fact, the entire city ended up having to file bankruptcy because of the recession. So it was really bad. And it was difficult then to pay for insurance and stuff. So even if we did have a reason to go to the doctor, we couldn't afford it long story long being my younger brother and I ended up in foster care and we were placed with my maternal grandparents and it was actually my grandma who recognized something and was like this is not okay i was having and this might be tmi but i was having really bloody bathroom trips And it had been on and off for a little while for years and then really severe. Honestly, looking back, don't know why it didn't terrify me because now it's like obviously such a sign that something is not okay. But I think I was so tuned out from my own body and dissociated from my own body that I just didn't recognize what was even the signs that were happening. So my grandma noticed and got me into a GI specialist. I had full GI series. So then really the focus was, oh, okay, I have a GI disorder. I have colitis. I have that issue. And so I went through my life thinking that was it for the next five-ish years. And I didn't really learn how to navigate this doctor spaces and was continued to be gaslit about my joint pain and my headaches for years. And then it was really becoming so debilitating, falling down the stairs, so painful that I didn't want to get out of bed or I couldn't straighten my legs, like things really, really undeniable in my own day-to-day life that I think I was 21, and I was like, this has to stop. I can't live like this anymore. So I went to doctors. I was in undergrad at this point, had really good support from my social worker still, who encouraged me to fight for myself. So I did They continued to say, well, maybe it's a vitamin deficiency in all the panels. But I learned how to navigate that system really well and speak their language and ask for the right tests. And eventually, it finally all came together.
2: You know, it's fascinating to me when you talk about how profoundly invalidating the environment around you was. You say, okay, I didn't recognize what my grandma recognized. How would you? You didn't know any better. And on top of that, our medical system didn't even recognize what was going on for the longest time. And I appreciate the advocate for myself, but I also want to recognize how difficult that is, particularly in light of all the gaslighting, right? Like, How do you continue to advocate when you're getting these answers no there's nothing wrong go to therapy yada yada so we tell folks to have a list of concerns to address with their doctor so that they don't get distracted or even gaslit but still i think this is so so important right that sort of trusting the inner wisdom my question to you is how do you stick with it because at some point I have get so tired of it, although you didn't have the option because the symptoms apparently were escalating and all of that. So it wasn't really, I suppose, an option to really give up on it. But do you have words of wisdom of how to sort of persist or how did you?
0: That is a really good question because you're right. It did feel there was no other option. It exists in a state of constant suffering or try to find an answer that could potentially decrease my suffering a small amount. Don't get me wrong. It has not been easy. It has not been a straight line. I still go through moments of feeling like giving up. And it's not like there's a cure for this disorder. And I've amassed several other diagnoses secondary to this condition, and it can feel really hopeless sometimes. I continue because I know that it's possible to live a life as a disabled person that is fulfilling and full of joy. And I know this because I have sought out role models that are doing that and so i will often find people via social media or articles who have similar conditions to mine and not like follow their steps but parallel their steps i guess and communicate with them if i can share back and forth i have like instagram account that's dedicated to being sick, basically. But right now, I think the biggest thing that keeps me going is knowing that if I had had the knowledge I have now when I was younger, things would probably look a lot different. I want to be able to do that for other kids. I want to be able to intervene sooner So that's why I'm in the MSW program. I'm hoping to be a youth disability advocate, probably in the school system in some way, because kids spend a lot of time in schools. It's a good place to identify needs. My desire to be functional enough to be that role for kids in the future is honestly what keeps me going.
1: I just know that there's people listening right now where this is a total mirror for them which may not even be about a disability but even like you said it could be about something that other people have been telling them it's all in your head get over it be tough or whatever the message is i feel like i just i'm hearing that so strongly that this goes back to i can't remember which of our other guests said it but it said keep looking for the person that's gonna hear you and listen to you and advocate for you. Those people are out there. And I totally believe that, especially on a college campus. But I love that, you know, you're going to be someone in the school system. But it just is a reminder that someone listening is going to be hearing this going, I need to do something. Because I've been getting a similar message. So I think it's really powerful.
2: Alone, I don't know if you had a question. I don't really have a question. But what I wanted to reflect back is What a powerful mission you are on because you started in a place of complete invalidation and what could be more validating than the support systems, which you hope to be part of that acknowledge and validate these concerns. And I also think of support groups. I was wondering if you have ever been part of any support groups or anything like that.
0: Not formal support groups. I would consider the group of friends that I've amassed through my Instagram account to be a giant form of support or even just some people that I follow and not necessarily like communicate with. But specifically, I'm thinking of a couple like a year, oh gosh, not even a year ago. Last April, I had surgery to divert my colon and make a colostomy. A lot of people who had ostomies, because I mean, it's not something that you really see publicized anywhere, instead of going into that surgery feeling like afraid or alone, I felt I was about to get a part of my life back. And I think that was because of the conversations I allowed myself to have with people who understood what it was like to live life in and out of doctor appointments and procedures. And then seeing life modeled By somebody who had an ostomy bag and see them really doing whatever they wanted. Form of support was and is very important to me. I really wish I didn't have to be so resilient because it's exhausting to have to continue to be this resilient and there's a privilege in not knowing what it takes to have to be this resilient.
2: And I really, really appreciate you saying that. And it also leads me to my next question then. How has the college experience been? We are in a college of social work and we know that there is a little bit more attention to privilege, power privilege, all of this. But particularly like in undergrad, how was that? How was your experience throughout undergrad? What was the messaging? Like how were you received? Like how did you navigate? Because I would imagine that these kinds of messages pop up everywhere lack of awareness in general tell us a little bit about that
0: undergrad was really difficult for a number of reasons i didn't know about like services for disabilities on campus or that they could offer accommodations and even if i did going into college as an 18 year old which for a long time in high school because of everything that was going on in my family and caretaking for my younger brother. I didn't think I was really going to leave, especially not out of state, to a university. So pursued accommodations because I was still so stuck, independent, pushed through mindset and tried really hard to jump into being a normal college student, a normal kid. It was difficult to have that comparison between myself and other students who were able to seemingly do so much more in their day without getting really fatigued or consumed by pain or having to take like even just extra bathroom breaks throughout a class. So I really started paying attention a lot to like how those little differences added up in my life, and it weighed on me. I didn't have support through SSD, which is what the disability office was called at my undergrad university, until I had this really horrible car accident and was fairly injured from it, had a traumatic brain injury. It was minor. And when I returned to the university, because of being on the rowing team, which saved my life in high school, I was on a rowing team in that environment. And my coach really helped me for the first time find my own voice, period, like in any way. And so having rowing in my life in college was something that I felt like I absolutely needed to survive. And so when I was really injured in the car accident, I was like, I have to do everything in my power to get back to that sport, even though at that point, my body capacity had already started to go- decline. I was a coxswain for the men's team, which is the person that steers the boat, which was honestly an awesome privilege and a great way to stay connected to the sport and have that social outlet. But also a privilege because I had access to the team's doctors and the team's physical therapists and the team's advisor. And they are the ones who sort of pushed me into mental health services even and the disability services. However, I wasn't really great at accepting that help in undergrad. And did have some semesters that I had to take off for medical leave to care for myself as a teenager. Honestly, even younger than that, I began coping via food intake and developed a severe eating disorder. So there was also that. My undergrad career was navigating some physical health concerns that were almost definitely exacerbated by being active in engaging in eating disorder behaviors and would be in the hospital and then treatment and then back to school. So I didn't participate in rowing the last two years of my education there, which I had a lot of grief about, but was ultimately what allowed me to focus on who I was and how many hours I had in the day are just going to be taken up with caring for my illnesses and med management and symptom management, and then figuring out, okay, now how do I manage those other hours I actually do have? So some of my instructors were also really encouraging me to seek out those supports for accommodations because I was we were talking about adaptive physical activity and adaptive exercise or stuff like that and they were like you're probably someone who could benefit from that or from seeking those things happened from a lot of different angles and by the time I graduated undergrad I had a pretty good handle on the accommodations that I needed. Before I even knew what classes I would be taking for Michigan, I had already emailed their disability office and was like, this is what I need. Here are my diagnoses and all the paperwork. And I got like really involved in supporting myself.
1: You said all of that so beautifully, and we've highlighted many student stories where accepting help has been challenging for lots of different reasons and so maybe I want to come full circle to something you said earlier which was that at some point you said when everything became visible and also maybe this was about the time when you were maybe in a more in a space of acceptance that there was this mix of having to navigate the difficulties of it. But also that I sense that you were saying there was something liberating about that too, owning it. And so I think that also is something that other students can relate to. It's not easy, but what did that do for you once you were able to in that liberation? And that might not be the right word, but that's kind of what I heard you say.
0: I think liberation is actually a pretty good word for the experience that I had. And it had kind of been for a little while once I finally got a diagnosis and the test said it, and it was a fact, that kind of began to lift some of the weight and allow me to process some of the medical trauma I'd experienced and break down how I gaslight myself in reading my own body cues. And... It still took me a little while to say out loud or I'm disabled or identify with that term. But once I did, it made me feel so much comfort because it allowed me to wear whatever braces or mobility aids or medications. I just really kind of accepted that I was going to need interventions and that those interventions would actually allow me to participate in life in a way that I'd been missing for so long. And it's up and down. It's dynamic. I have flares where even with the mobility aids, it's still really difficult for whether or not I'll ever be able to hike a mountain again or surf in the ocean. But I also know that there are so many ingenious ways to adapt things like that and still be able to experience them that accepting my disability and my diagnoses allowed me to explore all those ways instead of just sitting in a space where I felt like I was always going to be excluded, or denying myself the opportunity to experience joy.
1: Yeah, it was acceptance versus I'm sort of like digging your heels and pushing it away. So as we bring this episode to a close, I just wonder, what do you want? You know, you know, there's college students listening to this, like, what do you want them to hear?
0: The biggest thing I would want to impart is regardless of whether you're dealing with A disability or a chronic illness or a mental health issue or something's going on in your family or a relationship, it's okay to hold both. Like hold that you're in grief or fear or sadness or rage and laugh at a joke that your friend made or go out and grab yourself some coffee and enjoy that moment or do a craft like you can experience both at the same time and that's something that is difficult for me still but it's nice to remind myself of that because it's easy to get stuck in a mindset of oh well if I'm going through all this stuff and I know it's really hard, then all of my energy should just be focused on making it less hard or sitting in the sadness. And that if I happen to experience joy or a moment of happiness, that somehow invalidates the struggles that I've had or am having. And sometimes that is because People will see me having a good day and go like, oh, you're better. And, oh, well, I'm having a better day today, but tomorrow is, could be completely different. So I think that is what I would want to impart is allow yourself to have the happy and the exciting and know that that doesn't detract from everything else you're trying to deal with.
2: I'm also from the therapist's head thinking, oh, we are hearing all kinds of dialectical behavioral therapy here. We are hearing radical acceptance and we are hearing both and, and I love it. And what a powerful message to close with. Thank you so much for joining us. There is so much more I would want to know. Of course, I work with eating disorders, so we could go on tangents there, but we have limited time, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and, and sharing your powerful story with us.
1: Yeah, Thank you, Karina, and we will see y'all next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on your favorite pod platform. Share with your friends if this is making you think about and participate in college differently. We want to hear from you.
0: Connect with us on Instagram and let us know how it's going. This podcast is not professional advice or replacement for therapy. If you need professional advice, You should find it with professionals in your area, such as your primary care physician or therapist.